Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Warning. The topical content on this week's podcast will self-destruct in approximately 19 hours after release, though probably still not as quickly as the government will. and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that looks at politics and laughs, because frankly, otherwise it will cry. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week, as Prime Minister and the only person to try cryogenics while still alive, Theresa May says that voting down her deal will cause paralysis in Parliament. I bet that if that happened, the government would still say it was found fit for work. Yes, New Year, same old shit. As Parliament embarks on a week when everything can change by the time you've heard this podcast, the past month of British politics has been less of a run-up to leap into action, but far more of a bird-box challenge game of kabaddi. The vote on May's deal happens in just hours of this show being released, and it currently looks like her deal's going to be rejected by a majority of 228 votes, which would be a record for largest parliamentary defeat, something no doubt that May, as she clings onto power in September like some sort of demented barnacle stuck to a plug socket, she'll tell the Conservative conference means that she excels at defeats, and how actually it's the smallest defeat in the last five minutes which makes her amazing, whereas the last Labour government didn't get anything on a scratch card that Alistair Darling did in 2008. According to the government, such a defeat is not in the interest of the public because it'll either lead to a no deal, which is now no longer better than a bad deal, a realisation that can only be put down to either changing fashion trends in 2019, because apparently this year is not a great look to be wearing rags woven only from sodden British hay left over from our masses of unnecessarily slaughtered livestock, or maybe the government, like Lady Gaga, only just removing her collaboration with R. Kelly from sale, maybe they're pretending they've only just seen the internet for the first time ever. So either it'll lead to a no deal or a no Brexit, again highlighting that without her option which gives no one what they want at all, voting against May's deal will at least give one of the options people seem to be keen on. It's still the worst negotiating tactic of all time. Hey, none of you want this, but if you vote against it, some of you will get what you actually want. It's like a parent offering their kids, come with me to the shops or you can play with your friends or torture the neighbour's cat. Yes, one of those options is pointlessly destructive, but at least it's more fun than being dragged around Ikea for two hours while your mum spends hours looking at furniture but only buys tea lights. A no-deal scenario, though, which, according to disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox, is survivable, putting it in the same ballpark as having a stroke. A no-deal now looks less likely thanks to Parliament defeating the government in two motions during the debate on May's deal. 
The first was Cooper's amendment, as proposed by Labour MP and mad comics icon Yvette Cooper, which means that Parliament will have to vote first, or Article 50 would have to be extended before the government could change tax laws to help implement a no-deal. So, if we crash out, then it's unlikely your earnings will go towards a ferry company hired to cope with the channel overload, despite having absolutely no ferries available. Yes, that's a real thing. Though, to be fair, while giving £14 million to Seaborne Freight for contingency plans might seem crazy when you realise they've never run a single service, research shows the ports in Kent aren't ready for extra ferries, so hey, why not fix that by not sending them any? Makes sense. The Department of Transport also trialled a traffic jam, which was definitely not an innovative one, in Kent at Marston Airport to see how it would handle post-Brexit custom delays. 150 lorries and HGVs were invited, and only 89 showed up, which makes me, a type 1 diabetic, feel really reassured about the UK having the right amount of stockpiled insulin. Using 89 large vehicles to simulate what may end up being tens of thousands of vehicles in an event that doesn't need to happen is as helpful as prepping for a disease outbreak by having a LEMSIP. Of course, this was all the concoction, or rather undrinkable piss cocktail, of rejected butler for the Munsters and Transport Secretary Chris Grayling, a man who spent most of the Christmas period insisting that the best way to stop drones grounding flights was just to keep airport runways closed. Brilliant! If he was in the film A Quiet Place, I'm pretty sure he'd try to survive by not breathing in case the aliens hear it. Grayling is backing May's deal, and he warned that by blocking Brexit from happening, it could cause a far-right surge. You know, like the one that's already happened. I mean, there's no better way to stop things from happening than by, you know, doing all the things that aid them happening. Anyway, I'm sure in Grayling's case, he's just constantly terrified that if there was some sort of French-style revolution, he'd be immediately tied to train tracks and then left there for years, as absolutely nothing hits him due to all the bus replacement services caused by his shitty department. The second motion that the government lost on last week was the Grieve Amendment, which, yes, sounds like it's just about the period of mourning rule going through for the death of reasonable political debate. But no, it was Conservative MP and bird-turned-human through a curse Dominic Grieve's amendment that gives the government only three days to come up with a plan B if May's deal fails. Previously, they'd had 21 days, and even then that would mainly involve a spokesperson popping by Parliament to tell MPs, er, we've chosen the font to write plan B in before running away again. Speaker and Wind in the Willow star, John Burkow, no, I'm not telling you which Wind in the Willow star, sort of all of them, isn't it? Allowed a vote on the amendment, even though ministers should only be allowed to amend the motion because blah, 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 parliamentary stuff. But Burkow selected it for a vote anyway, and the government lost, and now they have only three days to come up with an alternative to a crap inadequate plan that took them two years to get to. Then, if that happens, which it probably will, the government has said that debate on Plan B would only be 90 minutes long, signalling that whatever they come up with will have to have less depth than a children's film. If Plan B fails, I think it goes to then a quick fire round where each side has a minute to shout as many alternative plans as possible, followed by a sudden death round where a final plan has to be submitted using just 12 words. Despite Burkow's allowing of the vote basically being in the cause of taking back control for those elected to represent the people, Brexiteers seem livid and are blaming him for staging a coup against Brexit. Brexit is the monkey's paw of campaigns. I feel like the £350 million for the NHS that was promised may now somehow appear despite evidence to the contrary, but only because it'll be the pitiful insurance money gained after all the hospitals burned down in a freak accident. Labour leader and what if Bluto was really ill, Jeremy Corbyn, has called for an election again if May's deal gets voted down, you know, in order to break the deadlock. Except he says his party is still pushing for Brexit, just one that has lots of things that EU says it can't have. So to break the deadlock of a government who don't know what to do about Brexit, you'd offer people a chance to vote for another government that doesn't know what to do about Brexit. Hey, maybe Jez has just gone for the idea that a change of scenery will do everyone a world of good. I mean, it's the political equivalent of sticking leftovers from lunch into a sandwich and saying you've made something new for dinner. 
Meanwhile, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Muppet or a man Abe told May on a visit to the UK that the global wish is that the UK avoids a no-deal scenario and that the whole world is watching. Yes, we are Earth's reality TV show that viewers are only tuning into for Schadenfreude. Only one contestant will leave, but everyone see this merry novelty dance they'll do to determine just how they'll depart. Questions of the safety of MPs have arisen as a group of men in high-vis vests shouted Nazi at MP and head of the neighbourhood watch Anna Subri when she was interviewed on the news. Thing is, judging by the online profiles of those involved, there's every chance they meant Nazi as a compliment. In a speech today in Stoke in a China factory, which is the worst place for Bull, May's last-ditch attempt to get MPs on side had her saying that blocking her deal will do catastrophic damage to the public's faith in democracy. Yeah, that'll persuade them. I mean, how on earth can you ruin something that's already dead? She may as well warn that voting down her deal will really hurt this decomposed roadkill that's been dead for years. Voting against my deal could cause foundation issues in the lighthouse of Alexandria. Anyway, in proof that it worked, hours after that speech, Conservative Whip Gary at least I'm not the other Johnson, Johnson resigned his cabinet position, saying that he couldn't, in all conscience, support the government's position. So, that's probably invalid then, on account of no actual proof that he had a conscience to begin with. As I write this, the vote on May's deal is tomorrow. If the vote doesn't go her way, then she'll be in Brussels on Wednesday, where they'll tell her yet again that the deal will not be renegotiated, but May will still try like a dog that keeps eating its own shit in the hope that it's become ice cream. Then next Monday, Plan B, so-called because you barely see any evidence of it anymore and trying to go looking for it may get the government stung. May ask Parliament today, when the history books are written, people will be asking, did we let the people down? Doubt it, but that's only because they'll be too busy asking, what is a book? Why is all the paper on fire? Can I take my gas mask off yet? Will you share that water or will I have to fight for it again? And why did all the rich people go to Mars? In other news, because there has been some squeezed in around the shouting, self-indulgent, mindless rant of Brexit, Home Secretary and Megamind, but without the mind bit, Sajid Javid, cut short his family holiday on an African safari because he had to race home to chase the Conservative leadership instead. Javid declared a major migration incident because six men were found on a beach near Dover in December, though if they just said they were trying to set up a ferry company, he'd probably have given them £14 million instead. The Home Secretary was heavily criticised after he suggested that the UK should deter asylum seekers from getting refuge here, though it is possible that he was just describing Brexit. The government unveiled their NHS 10-year plan, which they say involves giving world-class care for patients in England, though they don't say which parts of the world, so there's every chance you'll have a US-style bill after treatment, or like Sierra Leone, there'll only be 22 doctors per 1 million people. Across the pond, the US government is still in shutdown after President and collapsed souffle Donald Trump blames the Democrats for not getting to work on building a wall on the Mexican border that none of them want. He claims that criticisms that a wall is a medieval form of protection are stupid on account of wheels also being around in medieval times and people still needing wheels now. Yes, that really, really was his defence. Yes, comedy is getting harder. Now, there's a dozen and one jokes about how they should replace the wheels on Trump's presidential motorcade with some sort of wooden cart ones, but I still think a better plan would be just to show him Game of Thrones and see how long it is before he tries to persuade Congress to build a dragon instead. And lastly, a drama about the Leave campaign called Brexit the Uncivil War aired on Channel 4, causing immediate issues as it promised to have cartoon otter Benedict Cumberbatch in it, and then it actually did. I mean, if it wanted to be realistic, it'd have had a last-minute stand-in wearing a paper mask of Pope Benedict, and the whole show would only have lasted five minutes, and they'd just have expected it to write itself. Still, I got bored 15 minutes in, so I guess in that respect, it was spot on. And singer Kate, ooh, it's windy outside, Bush, has insisted that she isn't a Tory, despite everyone saying she was. Yeah, yeah, Kate, then how come you hang around with someone called Heathcliff? Hmm? 
Happy, uh, oh no, wait, no, wait, we're 15 days in now, so hang on, let me just backtrack. Um, newish year, everyone, yeah, welcome back, welcome back to the Partly Political Broadcast. And oh, let me tell you, I've been so excited about kickstarting this podcast again for 2019, so I can tell you all about and make gags about all the stuff that's happened in order to make absolutely no progress about anything before it all becomes irrelevant within hours. Good times, everyone, good times. Yeah, look, it was probably an error releasing this on the very day of the vote on May's deal where everything or nothing could change. But there was a lot to catch up on, and if nothing else, this week's interview should stand the increasingly hard test of time. It's one of the hardest tests, isn't it? Time. I mean, no one really gets a great mark unless they're immortal, and they ultimately lose by having to deal with other people's bullshit forever, which is, face it, too long. Uh, Anyway, I hope you can enjoy this week's podcast for what it is, and why not listen to it while watching the Commons on Tuesday night, and as the decision unfolds, you can imagine each and every part of this show fading away to dust in terms of topical relevance like Thanos has got all involved. Anyway, uh, how are you? That's what I meant to say. How's your year going so far? Mine has largely involved attempted veganuary and succeeding at it by eating the unhealthiest food possible. I'm not sure that's what you're meant to do, but still, those cows are going to thank me as I die of oat cream-filled arteries. Um, Thank you tons for coming back to the show, or if you're a newbie who joined the subscription ranks over Christmas, because damn you know how to treat yourself, then welcome to you all. I hope you all enjoyed the bonus content over the Christmas time. Um, Who knows how this year is going to go? now with this show but I have a feeling it's going to continue to be an hour long podcast for a while and still not have time for everything uh, so I'm going to keep trying to churn out a few extra bits when I can and like this week might demand when necessary um, but thank you very much for joining I'm very pleased you've come back and thank you also to those of you who donated to the uh, Kofi account over Christmas that is very much appreciated god it was needed it turns out that nine month olds don't understand that Christmas is a time for chilling and they're still up at five a fucking o'clock in the morning thanks everyone um anyway i've now changed the uh kofi that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpore bro um i've now changed that so you can do a recurring payment on there if you'd like to regularly buy me a coffee um which is exciting uh, there's also options on there like you can change it so it doesn't have to be a coffee anymore it could be a pizza it could be chips or i don't know it could be like uh, a moment of happiness but no seriously it's still i still need it as coffee um anyway i'm going to be adding the same sort of far too rare not often enough extras uh there that i normally put on the Patreon, 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 Patreon site as well, um, which I know less of you uh, fancy joining uh, the Patreon due to the whole dollars thingy. So that's why I've done that. The Kofi now you can join and do it regularly if you want to do that instead. Um, that's also in pounds. So hopefully that makes things easier. And the Patreon, though, is still there on patreon.com forward slash purple bro um, in case you want to gamble on which will be more expensive after several months of Brexit versus US government shutdown. Oh, the funds of collapsing economies, eh? Oh, the funds. Uh, thanks too to the lovely reviews that some of you gave uh, the show over the holidays, including several on a podcast site I didn't even know existed uh, till recently. Pod Paradise or something? I mean, that sounds a lot like a place that podcasts would go to die. But hey, I'm that shallow that I'd be happy for this show to be there uh, if death means more publicity. I haven't really thought that through. Anyway, um, if you would like to leave this show a nice review with big fat five stars or a new 2019 Slimline five stars, that's probably what's all the rage, isn't it? It's probably some sort of star diet. Hang on, is the Slimline five stars just 2.5 stars? In which case, 
that's not good. I have no idea what happens when numbers go on diets, unless that's how they become a sexy little number. People mention that quite a lot, don't they? Anyway, very confusing. Look, look, all I'm saying is, please just review the show uh, if you can. It would be much appreciated, and it does help bring other people to the show as well. Um, so, a uh, small bit of admin this week, um, or admini, if you like. I made a joke on the mini Christmas top-up episode, uh, which was just after the last proper episode. Um, I made a joke about jazz musician uh, Gilad Atzmon, which I may have may not have pronounced correctly. Um, and about anti-Semitism accusations against him because, you know, hey, it's always such a great subject for comedy. Um, Anyway, one of you lot uh, called Pete uh, very kindly wrote in and said that Gilad is Jewish himself and critical of Israel and pro-Palestine but not anti-Semitic and that some of his writing is interesting even if, as Pete pointed out, he didn't agree with it all. Um, Anyway, some of you may agree, some of you may disagree, uh, as is the case with these things. What I'm mainly mentioning it for is that I ashamedly didn't remotely research or look up anything about Gilad at on other than a tweet that I read because uh, it was a Rush mini episode and I mainly thought there was a gag in the idea of bigoted jazz um, so very sorry to all of you really as I do try to counteract incorrect news by actually researching stuff most of the time but it is also just little old me that does this and sometimes I forget so please do um, like Pete call me out on it and I'll be more than happy to correct when I can um, hopefully there'll be no more of that in the future this will all be properly researched um, though it does also once again hammer home that you probably shouldn't use this show as your only news source even if mean descriptions of politicians is absolutely what the news is missing come on come on Nagam and Chetty call Boris Johnson a bag of piglets that fucked Wurzel Gummidge come on come on Nagam and Chetty um, on this week's show bearing in mind anything Brexit related may go out the window um, there is a fun interview what yeah I know but I thought it'd be really nice to kick off this year's podcast with some positivity uh, so I interviewed excellent political folk singer and pal of mine the wonderful Grace Petrie um, who, if you don't know, you really should. In fact, pause this, go listen to her stuff, and then come back. Um, then, around that interview, I ruin all the positivity with some possibilities of what may happen over the next weeks and months with Brexit, or, you know, may totally not happen, but either way, you'll never get that time of your life back. Happy New Year! But before all that, here is a very, very brief bit of this. The government unveiled their new 10-year plan for the NHS, stating that it could save 500,000 lives. Could is a scary word in that sentence, obviously. Uh, Plus, they never mentioned if 500,000 is extra to the lives already saved, or, you know, just the cut-off point before they let the 500,000 and first patient die to save money. Seriously, note, the plan gives extra funding that will come from thin air or something to GPs, mental health and community care, and focuses a lot on prevention, which the government really aren't known for, and early detection, which, yeah, I mean, again, this shit really writes itself. But there's a lot of good in there on first glance, looking at more cancer screenings and digitisation of services to name but two. But overall, it doesn't address the lack of money in social care, which inadvertently puts greater strain on the NHS. The mental health policies are largely ones that were put into law over six years ago and are only now just being looked at. And records show that when a lot of money is thrown at, say, digitisation developments in the NHS without lengthy trial and carefully planned rollout, it can really cock up. I mean, last time it was tried, £12 billion was wasted and then it was all called off in 2011. To be fair, that was when Huckleberry Hound stunt double Andrew Lansley was in charge, and I wouldn't be surprised if he got confused by a calculator. More than any of this, though, understaffing means a lot of the policies will be hard to implement, with 1 in 11 NHS posts unfilled, because you can't cut waiting times when there's less staff to see patients. And when the money for this plan is supposedly going to at least partly come from a Brexit dividend that many economists say doesn't actually exist, how will this 10-year plan work? And that's only if next week's Brexit plans don't kick it into the ground anyway, by reducing even more staff and turning NHS pharmacies into one witch doctor with a ton of sage and some healing hands. But hey, that's the bonus of a 10-year plan, right? 
in 10 years, it's very likely no one who announced it will be around or accountable for it or using it instead of preferring their private healthcare schemes. But I guess that's the real reason why the government say it's focused on patients. Work and Pensions Secretary and woman who definitely spends her weekends hunting foxes with her bare hands, Amber Rudd, announced a raft of changes to universal credit because, hey, why kill off a monster of a policy when you can put lipstick on it and hope no one notices it now just looks like a monster on a night out? The big change is that Rudd has delayed the rollout of the new benefit system to 3 million claimants, instead just asking MPs to vote on a trial for 10,000 people as it's much easier to ignore that many if you've completely ruined their lives. Rudd says she wants universal credit to work for every claimant before it's expanded, and she's announced two major changes to the policy. First is that payments will now go to the main carer in a household, which is sort of what charities such as Refuge and Women's Aid have been campaigning for, as often the universal credit single payment per family can penalise women who are denied access to their benefits by abusive partners. By giving to the main carer, that means it's more likely to go to the woman in the family. However, it's still a single payment, so it may not work for all cases. The other major change is the partial scrapping of the two-child limit for payments, but it's only partial and anyone that's had more than two children after April 2017 is still going to be affected. And considering that at some point that's going to apply to everyone that has kids, it's really not that much of a breakthrough. It's like giving free pensions to everyone who turned 100 in July 2001 and pretending you've saved the elderly. As these not very good reforms were announced, at the same time four working single mums won a high court challenge against the DWP. The ruling said that the Department of Work and Pensions method of calculating the claimant's universal credit payments was unlawful and left them struggling financially. Single mothers are one of the largest groups affected by the benefit cap, so the High Court win was a big indictment of the system. The DWP has said it will carefully consider the court's judgment, but considering Amber Rudd's record, I've got a horrible feeling nothing will change and she'll just tell everyone she was unaware of any issues. You'd be forgiven for thinking that music nowadays, sung by them kids with their bleeping bleeping noises and loud twanging machines, isn't all that political. I mean, you know, compared to back in the day when, uh, you know, Bob Dylan sang and highlighted the issues surrounding um, whirring machines. Or Rage Against the Machine railed against printers always jamming. Or Billie Holiday sang Strange Fruit about tomatoes. But compared to that, it's very hard today to find overtly political songers complaining about the state of things in a melodic manner. It would be great to think that Ed Sheeran's dive was about the pound after the Brexit referendum or that Ariana Grande's thank you next was about the DWP's treatment of people with disabilities, but it's highly unlikely. Is it too hard to write music about today's politics without it just being screamcore metal? Or is it that artists in the 20 teens are more entwined in breakups than Brexit? Or is it just that you're listening in the wrong places? Like, for example, have you tried the world of folk music? As it says in its name, it's the music of the people. And while you might fear that that means every track is about Boaty McBoatface, actually, it means that political musicians in 2019 do indeed exist. For example, this week's guest is a brilliant, passionate, prolific and extremely talented sort of folk musician, you'll see what I mean by that in the interview, by the name of Grace Petrie. If you don't know Grace, then, as I mentioned earlier, sort that out ASAP. And secondly, she has been writing and playing protest songs since 2010 that somehow managed to be warm, funny, emotive, and at the same time resonating and topical. Um, You can probably tell I am a fan, and I have been ever since I was lucky enough to meet and work with Grace a few years ago, um, because as well as the folk music scene, she regularly appears on comedy shows alongside Josie Long and Robin Inns, to name but a few. Um, I've had the absolute pleasure of watching her make an audience laugh and then cry, and then sing along in united defiance with her rousing 
and choruses. Uh, I've been meaning to get Grace on this podcast for quite a while. And then, luckily, in the last week before Christmas, we were on two different show bills together. And so I thought it'd be a very nice start to this podcast in 2019 if I interviewed her before one of them to ask her how she does, what she does, and all about the difficulties of being a political musician in such an unstable era. Here is Grace. Is the future we're a patriarchal structure, and you never will surrender to a narrow view of uh, yes, that's it. Swearing, really. yes, no. Swearing, yes, yeah, swearing. Okay. You like? Okay. No, seriously, fucking loads of swearing. Okay. Not enough people swear. Like I swear on the podcast anyway. Yeah. And then people often swear and go, "Sorry, I'm like, no more, please." Yeah, I swear because all the time. I've really say... noticed how much I can't stop swearing since I entered the traditional folk world. Who want to burn me at the stake for doing so? Is, so. is the folk world really swearing? No, no, they they find it really offensive. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. But do you find because also you talk about politics? Like I find because I talk about politics, mm-hmm. I need to swear. Yeah, like same, right now, because yeah. if you don't swear about politics right now, then you obviously don't care about politics because it's <laughs> yeah. one big swear fest. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Yeah. Care about politics? Swear about politics. <laughs> yeah. That should be your... That's a nice yeah, tagline. Yeah. Damn, I like that. So, but you... Is that why do you need to swear because of politics or...? Um, I, th- I mean, I'm, I've always been quite sweary anyway. Um, I'm quite bad for writing lyrics that are quite sweary um, in such a way that I can't even censor them. So, like, one of my, one of my, like, my, my hits, <laughs> I suppose. Oh, is this Black Tie? Um, yeah. yeah. So, Black Tie is a song I brought out this year, and that's, and that, there's a line in the chorus that says, the images that fucked you were a patriarchal structure. Yeah. And the moment, like, when I thought of that, I was like, oh, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I, I could die happy. I think that's a But it was, it was lovely seeing you at the gig the other night and having the entire audience sing Fuck yeah. the Patriarchal Structure. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Well, that's my way of getting around. If, if people are going to feel weird about swearing, I've just realised that that is actually quite a, a nice little hack to be like, OK, well, we're all going to swear. You know, yeah. like, you can't be in we're all in on this. All I'm not it. swearing at you. Yeah. I'm swearing with we're you. We're swearing together. Yeah, yeah. that's lovely. See, that's um, really nice. So, yeah. That's um, good. But but also, like, how do you talk about politics without swearing at the moment? Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you know? I, th- I think it's impossible. Because yeah. all that, it's, either, it's either either I write material with swearing in it or I scream endlessly yeah. and just walk off stage after, like, a very long scream. That's, that's all I can yeah. do. I feel that's all I've got in Absolutely, my... Absolutely, yeah. I feel on the verge of screaming kind of every day at the moment. Yeah. It's pretty... Well, it's, it's, that's a good place to start. I wanted to ask mm. you, because I'm trying to think when I first met you, it must have been quite a few years ago, but you... Because you, when did you start doing folk music? That was 2000, and, according to Wikipedia, it was about 2006 or seven. It said, was I that suppose, right? I suppose, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't. I, again, I don't want to take us too far into the reeds of whether or not what I do is or is not folk music. But I've been doing, <laughs> I've been doing what I do uh, since. Uh, yeah, I guess I left school in 2005. Right. And then I was kind of gigging immediately after that, yeah. But you didn't. Um, when did you become political? Was it political from the beginning? No, never. No. Although. Um, it's an interesting thing kind of looking back because um, I did, I, I always wrote quite a lot um, from like a queer perspective um, and uh, just in, even in terms of like love songs, um, those, the love songs I was writing were songs, you know, about girls and about women um, and I never really saw that as a particularly political thing because right. it was just my life and experience and I was lucky to kind of come from a house where it was absolutely and completely normalised that I would talk about my love life in the way that any other teenager would talk about their love life. So I didn't see it as, like, a massively political thing. But now, I, retrospectively, I can see how people thought that that was, like, a political statement that I was singing about women. Um, but then, yeah, I started writing, I guess, 
party political songs, what we might call um, protest songs. Um, I started writing those when the, when the Tories got in in 2010. Yeah, I got really like politicised, um, like a lot of us did. I think then around yeah. about that time, um, and then it was kind of I, I met yeah I met Josie not too long after that, um, and I met you I think through Josie. And there, I think there was a lot of us that kind of had probably always had like um, you know left of centre politics. And probably, you know, would have described ourselves in our spare time as political people. Yeah. But then it kind of was a bit like, oh, the game's fucking changed here. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Now, yeah. now it didn't really Absolutely. feel. If didn't it feel a bit sort of um, uh, like decadent for for politics to not be the only thing you talked about and cared about and worked about and thought about all the time. Yeah. It suddenly became serious. It yes, suddenly became really serious. serious. Even, even though I know there was like that well, Iraq war was serious mm. and then the crash was serious and there was various other things but uh, and, and I think uh, I don't know how you were I, I definitely sort of was too young during those years to know to understand it and then I hit the right sort of age to give a shit yeah, kind of totally. 2010 to suddenly go oh no I have to give a shit now because yeah. things are starting to be awful already for sure for sure and I think as well like just going back to the thing about being gay like I because um, my parents and my family are so brilliant I hadn't ever really like I hadn't really experienced particularly any homophobia at all um, so I kind of I kind of grew up thinking like we were, that was finished homophobia and that do you know what I mean and that uh, that I kind of didn't really see any um, ways that being gay was going to negatively impact my life and then when Theresa May uh, became the Minister for Equalities uh, Minister for Women and Equalities 2010 um, that was like a real like oh fuck no hang on a minute like because obviously you know she obviously had used her, you know, position of power to vote against LGBT rights at every kind of possible time in her career. Yeah. And so to suddenly, at the age of, like, what would I have been, I don't know, my early 20s or late teens, to suddenly be like, all right, the person who's in charge of my liberties is actually homophobic. Um, That suddenly was a bit like, oh, right, so, yeah, this isn't just, like, a kind of, like, you know, this isn't just, oh, let's chat about politics in the pub. This is a bit like, oh, hang on a minute, this feels a bit close to home. And then, obviously, various things like that. I had lots of experiences. I mean, this I just can't absolutely cringe, obviously, at how completely privileged this sounds, completely privileged that it is, you know what I mean, being sort of white and middle class and... Um, you know, not disabled in various other ways um, that I have enormous amounts of privilege. But um, I mean, if it were... helps, I've got the same <laughs> male as well. So I mean, yes. essentially, essentially, you're. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm still worse than you. It's good. fine. You can enjoy. That's good. <laughs> good. We're, it's, got... a, it's a race to the bottom. Yeah, male and straight. Um, so I'm really, I'm really yeah. wallowing in it. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. everyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stop oppressing me, Tina. Uh, yeah, no, but um, it was just like a period of kind of um, various policies started kind of really touching people around me. Uh, like, uh, you know, like uh, I was going out with someone at the time who was, um, or for like part of the Tory government, I was going out with someone who was like a single mum on benefits. And I watched, you know, her life got kind of demonstrably harder. And, you know, I had various friends who were kind of on job seekers and had loads of, you know, had all, all of their job seekers cut and things like that. And then and then obviously just seeing, yeah, just seeing like food banks open up in Leicester and literally seeing, you know, just exponentially more homeless people on the streets. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, so I kind of started. But it was one of those things that once you get involved in it, or once you get kind of more 
active, I suppose, in it, the more I kind of met people who were activists as well, and I kind of I, I learned so much more just by being involved. And then people kind of kept coming up to me and saying, um, you know, have you heard about this thing? Have you heard about this story? Have you heard about this case or this cause? And, you know, you should write a song about that. And then so it kind of became like a bit of a self-fulfilling self-sustaining sort of thing and is there something and I know you say you don't want to go into whether what you do is folk or not mm. but folk has a history of being political sure yeah from sort of all the way like the John Barleycorn must die all the way mm. to the sort of Pete Seed totally. and Joan Byers and all of that there's, there's, there's politics that kind of runs through that genre of music mm. do you feel that kind of is, is that why you kind of went towards folk not folk what, what yeah. you do in the first place or mm. You know, is it just uh, a useful music that uh, a useful style of music kind of to put politics to? I don't know. What's the yeah? I don't how know. does it merge? I mean, the only reason I say folk or not folk is just because um, it's funny working outside of of the folk scene for as I did for many many years. I kind of thought of myself as a folk singer, uh, and then once I was inside the scene, I kind of discovered. Um, traditional English folk music and traditional Scottish folk music and traditional Irish folk music and basically traditional folk music of all kinds and realised that it kind of I kind of understood why I'd had such a hard time getting booked in the folk scene so I was like oh yeah that's absolutely a million miles away from what I do but then I think you know I kind of grew up on like um, a lot of Bob Dylan Uh, you know Bob Dylan was a big influence in my uh, life growing up, my dad's a big Bob Dylan fan. I listened to loads of Bob Dylan growing up. You know, Joni Mitchell, uh, Tracy Chapman. You know, and and that and so that yeah that um, yeah that tradition of kind of using that genre to tell a story. I mean, I think if there is any like criteria by which I am a folk singer as opposed to just a kind of singer songwriter, is that you know that has always been a massive part of folk music as you say you know going right back to the to its beginnings because mm. it exists to be the music of, of the working people right yeah. that's what yeah, it's yeah. for um and it always has existed to sort of tell stories and struggles of working people um the irony of all of that is that like as i kind of become more to use a really cringy word successful uh i kind of have probably less in common with the, the the struggles of kind of everyday working people so it's kind of a weird thing about whether or not folk can ever really be folk if it's uh, like on a stage and you know being kind of if people are sort of it the moment there there are some schools of thought that would argue that the moment you have an audience and the stage and a separation between put someone singing the song and people listening to the song it kind of stops become it kind of stops being folk music automatically because folk should be something that is sort of like you know, totally community based and everybody joining in. So. Right. But so you it's be wild. sort of sitting yeah. in a room by yourself singing it out. Yeah, well, you should, well, I think where you should be is singing in a pub. That's right. The, that's the idea. You're supposed to be sitting in a pub, singing in a, in a circle with loads of other people. Um, but I mean, it, yeah, I think, um, I, I, yeah, absolutely. That I think folk music and politics are completely and utterly uh, intertwined and I think totally in, inseparable and should be because. Yeah, because the, because the, I think there's almost no point to this kind of music if it's not uh, radical. If it's not, if it you know it exists to hold the powerful people of the day to account, it mm. always did, uh, and I think it still I think it still does. Yeah, which, which is I mean, because if if you're not meant to play it to crowds, uh, you know, or, to, or just mm. play it to the pub, because I, I, it sort of puts into question why 
you would do it because I think one of the things and, and I've got to try not to make this interview just gushing about how much I enjoy your music because Aww. I do oh, um, but one of the many reasons I love it is because you have a passion and an earnestness in singing about well in singing about everything when I heard you sing Ivy the other night it made me weep a bit <laughs> as a new parent I was like oh god that's lovely um, that's when you're non-political but when you sing about politics it sounds you know you sing like you care which mm. is is not something that happens um, personally I feel that's been missing in a lot of music mm. uh, for a long time but mm. it's great to hear someone get up and sing like no this means something to yeah. you and that's why you want to sing about it so what's the reason for you to, do you do you do you sing about it to people to kind of radicalize and to kind of say this is what needs to happen do you sing because you need to get it off your chest what's the what's the reason for writing such political songs yeah all of the above I think I mean my, I, I always say that I've only ever written anything as a source of self-comfort <laughs> um, because I do get really I mean, God, I was just today, I was just storming around my house <laughs> saying to my girlfriend, the patriarchy is going to kill me off in the end, uh, which is not uh, an unusual uh, circumstance. Um, but I do get, yeah, I, I, I feel things very keenly. I always have done. And I do find that working them out by singing a song is a very good way of like getting them, getting them off my chest. Um, but invariably, it is the case for me that the, the, the songs that have the best impact on people in terms of sort of firing them up or making them feel like they're not on their own and, and in doing so, you know, they can be a part of a movement that can change change things. Um, they are the ones that are very, very personal and came from a place of me wanting to, you know, sort of write them to myself. I mean, Black Tie, I mentioned it earlier on, but um, Black Tie is kind of the... And Farewell to Welfare are probably my two, like most well-known songs and they are um perfect examples of that because farewell to welfare as i mentioned i wrote that um on 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 the at the on the occasion of sort of realizing that theresa may uh and and not just theresa may but homophobic tories were in charge of things that were going to affect me and how much i found that really frightening and distressing um and then I wrote a song off the back of that that was kind of, you know, that was for my own benefit, that song, really. I, I just kind of wrote that to sort of get it out of my system. Um, but that's, you know, years and years later, people still kind of really connect with that song and come up to me at the end of shows and talk to me about that song. Uh, and Black Tie this year, you know, I wrote a song called Black Tie, which was out on my record in 2018. And, um, and that I wrote that song about basically being a, a masculine woman, about being a butch lesbian and feeling all my life like that was kind of a really unattractive thing to be because basically I live in a society which is kind of designed by and for straight men. So, you know, they're kind of the only lesbians you ever see on TV are supposed to be kind of ridiculously feminine lesbians and um, and butchness in women is something that's kind of actively discouraged and actively insulted actually at pretty much every every point in my life. And I sort of realised that, you know... I'd basically been sold this lie and butch women everywhere sold this lie and, and everybody sold this lie, which is that, you know, boys have got to be masculine and girls have got to be feminine and there is no in-between and never the two shall meet. And actually that's, it doesn't have to be like that. People can be, you know, people can be anything basically. Um, but I wrote that song as a very like, per yeah, that was a personal thing. And then that, and the moment that I, I, I published that anywhere, it just went like wildfire and so many people kind of were writing to me and saying how much they felt sort of represented by it and how it made them feel 
you know, that it gave them, some people even emailed me and said that it gave them the, the confidence to come out, which is like incredible. That's yeah, yeah. So, but, and I, th- and I think you can't, um, you know, this, I don't know if this is, if, if I'm not allowed to say this, you can edit it out, but, um, this is one of the reasons why I, I really never enjoyed doing the Now Show on Radio 4 because right. you can't... You, I think if you try and write stuff to order, it's really obvious that it's not from the heart. Do you know what I mean? I think it's... it's I've never been able to write anything good um, which was as the result of basically being given a deadline in a commission. You know, I think you've got to... You've really got to care about it. That's Because well, that's, that's interesting. I was going to ask you about the, like the subjects you write about mm. because you, you really... And I should say one of the loveliest things I think about Black Tie is the fact that your song is you're addressing your 15 year old self. Yeah. Which I think and uh, oh my god I'm going to do a terrible straight white man jumping into claim things. But but the <laughs> fact that you know teenagers have image problems whether mm. it be you know sort of a sexuality issue whether it be but that thing of kind of going I'm, I'm telling you it's okay and yeah, that really sure. touches yeah. as as a listener hearing you say that to mm. we you know we can imagine how your younger self was and it mm. feels very empowering you know yeah. it's a really empowering. So and I think um, just to say like you know. Um, because, yeah, when initially when I wrote it, I was like, oh, you know, maybe there will be some queer women who will who will like this song. But other than that, I imagine it's going to be quite niche. And actually, you know, I've been playing it all year. And I've had so many, like, straight men, like, come up to me and say, oh, that song really, like, hit home with me. And, yeah. I, and, it, and it, it's funny because something that I thought was quite a sort of, um, yeah, quite a niche experience is something that actually I think it is quite universal like everyone's got a lonely teenager inside them somewhere do you know what I mean everyone's got like some insecurity from those days and I yeah. think that um, yeah just the, the, the fact of, of kind of going oh actually like when you grow up it's going to be alright well and also now we're in a world where gender is very fluid and mm. there's constant issues with transphobia and things and identity is such an important issue mm. overall and there yeah. are so many people that perhaps thought they felt a certain way of realising maybe actually all along they haven't and they've identified something. Do you know what I mean? So mm. I think it hits on a number of levels mm. for a number of people, but with that very powerful thing that I said you do before, you do it very personally. And, mm. and we know that it's something that's affected you. You're not just singing it because you know it will affect other people. You yeah. sing it because it affected you, and that's mm. what I think makes it really work. But what, what I wanted to ask about that, but, you know, you do Black Tie, but then you've done, like, Make America Hate Again or mm. Farewell to Earth, all these songs that work on a bigger, more national level. Mm. But obviously it has to bother you... Fur, it has to, yes. you know, because there must yeah. be political things going on that you think, nah, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna write about oh that, or, God, yeah. or you've got no interest in writing about yeah. it. And also, you know, God, there's only 24 hours in a day. <laughs> I mean, the amount of stuff that's going on at the moment. Um, yeah, absolutely, you know, and I think, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you must have the same thing with comedy, but um, I, I often I kind of I have had people sort of come up to me and say, you know. You never like you write about this, but you never write about this, and you know I, I think that it's. I mean, this. I mean, look, look, we're all bleeding heart liberals. We, our problem is that we care too much about everything all the time, isn't it? But you know, I think at the same time, first and foremost, to be honest, I'm I am trying to make good music. You know, yeah. I think that's the, that's the weird thing I think about the, the whole protest singer label is that I think people think that I'm just trying to make some kind of punchy statement. Actually, I'm I'm tr- I'm, tr- I'm trying to be a good musician, <laughs> you know. Always, that's what I'm. That's my my first priority is I'm trying to write good songs, and and yeah, the the ones that end up being worth repeating 
are the ones that I where on some level it kind of goes to the heart of me do you know what I mean sure um and yeah, yeah no, no fortunately there's no shortage of things to be fucking furious about at the moment yeah uh, well it's, it's like you say I, I have the same in that I write things that I know I can make a joke out of there's sure. lots of situations that are too sad for me to make a joke out Absolutely, of them and yeah. so I leave them alone and then you yeah. get people going why haven't you joked about that because you try you try and do it it will make you sad sure um but then like uh because you, you changed the lyrics to Farewell to Welfare, didn't you? I remember you did two versions of mm. it because the first one had David Cameron in, didn't it? And then he went, is that I've right? I'm trying to remember the early version. I've changed the lyrics a lot over the, over the, over the course of it. Um, so yeah. is, is the current politics just, like, how does that affect songs and especially songs that you've already released? <laughs> and, mm. then you have to, and then the whole situation changes. Yeah. How does that affect you? Well, <laughs> um, I mean... It, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, because I um I've been there and back in the last few years and uh, I think like many of us on the left uh after years and years and years of disillusionment with uh new labor um I wrote in 2015 I supported the green party and I wrote a whole record about how we should all um support the green party and leave the labor party <laughs> and that you know what am I going to do that's still on sale that still exists you know um I mean my you know I I is quite hilarious to me to think that that was only three years ago you know I suppose nearly four years ago and how much how unrecognisable the political climate in Britain is in those four years um but you know I I think you've just you've just kind of got to be like the way I I mean the way I deal with it now is I just uh, you know at gigs on stage you know I just say to people like hey you know my, my, my views on things have changed politics has changed a lot in my lifetime it's changed an awful lot even just in my adult life it's changed a lot in my 30s I'm only two years into them <laughs> um, so uh, you know I think that stuff just it has to just exist and it has to just hang around you know on in the ether you know on, on Spotify and iTunes and all those things it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And we'll be back with Grace in a minute, but first... Brexit Fallout! Brexit Fallout! Brexit Fallout! 
there's really is no point to this bit, is there? I mean, it looks like May's deal is going to be voted down, but no one can actually predict anything anymore because it's very hard to guess the odds when it's the odds that are in charge. But hey, I thought it may just be useful to have a rundown of how this could go either way. Or, knowing current politics, somehow it'll go both ways and confuse everyone. Personally, I'm hoping it gets voted against at 52-48%, to 48%, and then we can all enjoy May having to respect the will of the parliamentary representatives of the people and have a brief laugh before we realise that we have absolutely no clue of what comes next. I should also say, and oh god, let me get a little wretch out of the way at the thought of saying this. Oh, oh. Yeah, no, that's better. Hang on, wait. All right. Oh. Okay, okay. Sorry, I think that's out of the system. May's deal, for a deal that is somehow trying to combine the wants and needs of Brexiteers and Remainers, isn't that bad. Sure, it's nothing anyone wants, but you know, in the way you can't please everyone, especially if you've never tried before and when you smile it looks like you're in pain. But unless we go into a terrifying no-deal scenario or Brexit is avoided completely, it's unlikely anyone, including Labour, would get any sort of better in-betweeny deal because of how the EU works in its very law-based rather than case-by-case based way. But hey, who knows, it could just be that the EU are all still so angry that they've had to deal with misery-flavoured candy floss David Davis for so many months, full by skin patty Dominic Raab and then Stephen Bartley a man so dull everything he says becomes immediately forgettable within seconds of saying it and of course Theresa May whose presence in a room is less warm than the Mothman that maybe they'd just be so overjoyed to see any other face that they'd slam through a ton of cherry picking but somehow I doubt it Corbyn's want for a deal is still a customs union with the EU and access to the single market but no freedom of movement but maybe a little bit. Essentially not far off a Norway deal but that would really upset leavers and would still need work on the Northern Ireland issue. Oh god, listen, can I just bang my head on a desk for five minutes because I genuinely think that would be more enjoyable. So, back on track. If May's deal gets rejected, then the next day she'll be in Brussels to try and get further concessions from the EU, which they've said they won't give. But it is possibly that they said that in the hope that her deal might get through, so they could change their minds if it doesn't, or you know, not. Who the fuck knows? Then by Monday, she's got to have a plan B, which, according to questions asked her other Conservative ministers over the past week, will likely contain these exclusive details. Shouting, look over there, then running in the opposite direction. Closing their eyes, putting fingers in their ears and singing la 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 until it all stops. Blaming the EU. A military coup. Being so shit at handling no deal that they managed to screw that up and end up with some deal by total fluke. And being so shit at handling a no deal that the UN have to stage an intervention. So look, it'll probably be one of those. But Parliament will get a say, and now thanks to Cooper's amendment, a no-deal option may be avoided. But if it isn't, tons of no-deal planning will kick off like loads of emergency laws being rushed through Parliament, lots of civil servants leaving their departments to work on a no-deal, and I don't know, Chris Grayling being thrown into the sea so he can't keep ruining things. It's also likely a whole ton of cabinet ministers will quick just as things get heated because, you know, David Cameron was such an inspiration to them. Business Secretary Greg Clark and Work and Pension Secretary Amber Rudd have said they'll definitely leave the cabinet, which means May would either have to draft in hardcore Brexiteers, which feels fair because it's what they want, but also based on the ones we've seen like Liam Fox or Davis, will just mean everything goes wrong because they haven't remotely thought about it and they'll just sort of assume the cleaner will deal with it if they leave it in a pile over the weekend. MPs could also try to avoid a no-deal by putting forward their own Plan B ideas. Though now May has said there'll only be a 90-minute session for debate, they'll have to find really catchy ones with one-word titles just to get it heard like some sort of terrible episode of The Apprentice, aka any episode of The Apprentice. Hey, my plan is called Utopia. Mine's called Dynamic Temptation. Mine's called Liam's Great Plan. Oh, Liam, fuck off. Corbyn is very likely to call for a vote of no confidence in the government, which he promised he's going to do soon. You know, like the world's most boring teaser trailer. But the DUP won't back a vote of no confidence in May unless May's deal passes, and Corbyn says he won't push for one unless it fails. So who knows? 
If, though, that does happen and no confidence vote goes ahead, then if it's backed by enough MPs, that causes a 14-day countdown where everyone scrabbles to get a Commons majority. And if no one party or group of parties gets a Commons majority within that time limit, then a snap general election is triggered, so-called because everything is breaking, which would then take place at the earliest on March the 7th, and that would leave just 22 days for whoever is elected to have to sort everything out just in time for leaving the EU. And hey, I'm sure that would be fine because this whole process just moves so goddamn quick and smoothly anyway. Oh, of course, though, Article 50 could be extended, but May said that she won't do that, but then that would depend if she's there in the first place, or isn't there anymore, or whoever, or whatever. Yes, I'm also amazed Dr. Seuss hasn't made this into a book yet, but perhaps the characters and story are just too ridiculous and don't rhyme enough for him. Although I would suggest Liam Fox, stupid cocks. I mean, it's, it's there. It's right there. There's also still support for a second referendum, but probably not enough support to get it passed unless the Labour frontbench back it. And Corbyn has said that he left that option on the table, but I also imagine his table is full of a lot of weird crap, including cutouts from newspapers from the 70s and freshly dug up carrots. So, you know, chances are he won't notice it for several years until it's too late. Or May could just insist that everyone votes on her deal again and then again until it passes or we stay forever in a weird Brexit limbo where nothing really happens. God, imagine that, eh? Just, just fucking imagine that. I mean, nothing, just nothing happens for ages. Ugh, weird. Or May could resign and cause a Conservative leadership race, but let's face it, the only real way to remove May from number 10 involves some sort of very strong descaler or knocking down the building and putting it somewhere else while she clings onto a sink for her life. I mean, I've never, ever seen anyone more stubborn at staying where they are since the ex assist. Or, 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 or MPs could turn out to have been telling fibs all along and then everyone votes for May's deal, which let's face it wouldn't be that surprising considering most of them seem to flip-flop opinions like they're thought pancakes. If that happens and everything plods along according to May's plan, the UK leaves on March 29th with a transition period till end of December 2021st and somehow in between all that the government or whoever's left in it, so probably just May and a nodding dog toy, will have to sort out how the border in Northern Ireland will work, all of the post-Brexit relationships and trade deals with the EU and all non-EU countries and still find something for Stephen Barclay to do once he's run out of colouring books. Or, you know, I don't know, the sun could explode several thousand years earlier than predicted, and by the time you've heard this, it could just be mayhem, and we're all sitting in burning, gaseous flames of heat that we've never quite felt before, knowing that within a short time, it'll suddenly be dark and cold forever, and all the while we'll be thinking, ah, well at least we don't have to deal with Brexit negotiations anymore. Fingers crossed. And now, back to Grace. I mean, it's the, the nice thing, you know, farewell to well, I say the nice thing, it's awful, isn't it? But the fact is, farewell to welfare is still relevant, whichever lyrics <laughs> the you change. The lovely thing. Well, it's that, as a comedian, I keep feeling, you know. Austerity is still, still fighting for it. Well, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's that thing of, you know, as, as a comic, I, I, I really, really want Theresa May to go. I really want the Conservatives out. But if they go, I lose so much material yeah. and I'll have to write more stuff. Mm. And there's that weird bit in you that goes, I mean, this is great for joke writing. Yeah. It's just terrible for yeah. everyone. Absolutely. Terrible way to be. I mean, actually, as we record this, I know it's not going out for a couple of weeks, but um, we're like two days away from my big London show, my biggest London show of the year. I always do this big show at Christmas. And um, I, obviously, like, we're going to play Farewell to Welfare, and there's this whole bit in about it. Like, in many ways, that song is, it doesn't really work without Theresa May. There's been some lines that have changed over the years, um, but Theresa May is a very central figure in the lyrics. And there was a moment when it was like, Jeremy Corbyn's tabling and no confidence. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's like, if they get rid of her in the next two days, then we're fucked for that song. 
But uh, yeah, I suppose I would have to. I think on on balance, for the good of the country, I would accept not playing farewells welfare anymore I, in I, the service of getting rid of Theresa May. Good protest songs last though, even if the, it's sort of the historical message. I mean, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna choose a a, a weird one as a thing, but like Free Nelson Mandela still mm, gets sung, sure. even though he was. Yeah. I mean, he's passed away now. And he was freed many years ago, yeah. <laughs> but it, but the sentiment behind it still comes through. You know, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah, and then you know you do have the songs that that just come come back again as well you know I mean uh, I mean actually like um, Farewell's Welfare is, is like I wrote that in 2010 and I went through a few years of not really playing it loads because it wasn't massively relevant and then when Theresa May became leader of the Labour Party then it Labour kind of Party. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ <laughs> thinking, oh my god what's happened today that I oh my god <laughs> I told you things things move quickly Tim and uh, no, Christ, no. When she became the lead... Sorry, that was a, a, a Freudian slip. No? Um, when she became Prime Minister, um, I mean, uh, then I kind of had... It kind of enjoyed this kind of, like, uh, yeah, resurgence a little bit in, in my shows. And I was thinking about, like, you know, there's power in the union, like, to use a famous example. Like, you know, at the time, the, the union that Bragg was talking about in the 80s was, like, the, you know, the very literal, the trade union... Um, but actually, you know, here we are like 40 years later and that song, you know, the way that it was used in the film Pride uh, mm. is like, re- you know, it, it takes on this whole new meaning about, you know, just the union of, of people together and, uh, yeah, just solidarity in general. So I think, yeah, the best, the best, that's the trick, I think, with, with the, the, the sort of art of the protest song, which I don't know, hopefully one day I'll kind of conquer, which is that writing things that are as relevant in the moment but also able to last and stand, you know, in 20 or 30 years' time. Because um, I think it's either... I am I think I'm quite good at, at, at doing, like, uh, literally, like, the moment things are kicking off, I'm quite good at kind of getting, like, uh, you know, and, like, literally writing something immediately. I mean, like, Make America Hate Again is, like, a good example that, you know, um, hopefully when we are one day sooner the better free of Trump... There's going to be a lot in that. that I mean, I, that just basically won't make any sense anymore, you know, because... Uh, as I, But that's the thing, like I was saying earlier on, about just getting so riled up and upset and angry that I just sort of dash off a song, you know, that yeah. kind of tends to be the way it goes. So you don't have, like, 6,000 drafts of Brexit song? Hidden <laughs> <laughs> away. Yeah, cracky, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to release my 54-track Brexit album, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and re-release yeah. every week yeah. until, <laughs> until something... Who even knows, though? I mean, how do you even record these? Because, yeah, who even knows? Maybe, will it even be happening by the time it goes goes out? I mean, yeah, probably. I mean, oh, it is, uh, will the world even still be here? Is, is, is there anything that you really want to write about at the moment that you can't get your teeth into? Or is, anything, is, is Brexit one of them? Um, is Brexit one of them? Or, you know, is there something that you... Brexit's a weird one. I mean, I think... Like a lot of people that I've spoken to, I sort of feel like I don't want to leave the EU. I think Brexit's shit, obviously. I voted Remain, obviously. I also think that, you know, I, I support Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and I support the direction that it's it's kind of got, it's moved much closer to my personal politics in the last couple of years since he's been in charge than it was, you know, ever before in my lifetime. The only way I even was able to vote Labour in the past, and as I say, I didn't, I wasn't even able to vote for them in 2015. And the only way I voted for them before that was basically just in the miserable knowledge that it was basically the only option that I had, you know. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so I think that... Um, 
you know, I've yeah, I got a lot of concerns about Brexit. I think that I would say that the fact of Brexit scares me more than what's going to happen when and if we leave. Like the fact that we got here, the fact that we got to this point that the country is so divided about this and the reasons for it and the things that people align themselves with in the service of voting leave, you know, like the absolute worst, most horrible tribal instincts. And I know that not everybody voted leave for that reason and I know that there are left-wing arguments for voting leave and all of this and 10,000 other factions within every other camp... Um, but I just think that we're so. I don't. I, I don't. I don't know how. I mean, any story, any opinion on on social media, you only have to look at. You know, people are just so at each other's throats about everything all the time at the moment, and it's impossible, I suppose, to know whether or not it is worse now, or it's just that in the past we didn't really know that. You know, Robin's got a great bit about how. Um, you know, we used to be like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we knew what everyone thought and everyone had a chance to speak? <laughs> and now we've got Twitter and it's shit. You know, and uh, but I, it's hard to know whether or not we actually are more divided than we were in the past. Obviously, I don't know. This is the only time I've ever lived in. I do think that um, we we just seem to be at this point of horrible. And I hope not, but it looks very sort of irredeemable, irre, irre, irreversible. Um, irreversible kind of splits on on so many fundamental issues and that I just don't know where to begin you know to write to write about that or to talk about that in any way I, f- I mean I feel like totally despairing about it um, I mean does that, that make it <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I mean because uh I sort of realise how sort of self-aggrandising uh, this sounds, but like I feel like with comedy, you're the voice of the people, or you you, you get to kind of project things for people so that mm. they can laugh about them. And with folk music or, or with the, in music, you do um, it's the same thing. You're standing on stage and you're helping mm. people understand that you either feel the same as them or you're helping uh, put it into words. Like, mm. but if the if the voices of the people are all very disparate and divided, does that make your job inc- much harder? You know, does it, does it become yeah. harder to work out what voice you need to or yeah. want to be for them? Sure. Um, yeah, and but I mean, also like I mean, I think like a lot of us do. I massively preach to the choir, you know. Like my audience, I don't really have anyone in in the audience who who doesn't kind of agree with me on most things about politics. Um, but I think that what's harder for me is that I don't really want to write. I mean, I joke a lot about writing sad and angry songs, but I actually don't. I don't want to write things that are totally despairing. I don't think the world needs that. Mm. Um, I think there is enough negativity in the world and people don't need to be reminded that everything's shit. Everybody knows that everything's shit. Um, You know, I do... And I think that... And also, it's not a a conduit to action, I don't think. It's not a conduit to activism. Telling people that, you know, things are fucked and they can do nothing about it and isn't everything awful, that's not going to inspire a positive change in the world. That's not going to inspire anybody to go out and get involved with anything. That's going to make them want to kind of go home and you know, draw the curtains and eat junk food, that's what it makes me want to do, do you know what I mean? So, I struggle with that, is I struggle with wanting to be honest on stage and actually feeling, like, really awful about politics at the moment. I'm really scared, actually, really scared about what's coming. I feel like, you know, the way that things are, in America especially, I just feel like we're heading for, like, absolutely awful third world war style you know and i'm and i feel so uh yeah i, I sort of just don't know what I, I 
like singing songs feels so kind of insufficient <laughs> and, in, and inadequate do you know what I mean when I kind of feel like I look at kind of what's happening and um you know look at the, the Stansted 15 uh, protesters being literally convicted under terrorism laws and just thinking like how can that be the, like how can that be the case you know but also I mean I know there's an argument as well for you know raising awareness of things like that you know mm. I suppose there will be people who just will have glanced at a story about those people that got arrested at Stansted and will probably just you know have kind of taken it at face value and think, oh, right, they were terrorists or something. I'll move on with my day. So I suppose, you know, there is, um, in, a, in a world of increasingly sort of disparate and divided and some would argue untrustworthy media, I think, you know, we do have obviously a, an opportunity and a responsibility to tell the stories properly that maybe aren't being told, you know, in, in the media or wherever. So I suppose, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there is a utility of it in, in, that, in that way. It's just hard for me to try and find the the light in these things, to sure. try and find the hope in them, because I have no interest in, in telling everyone that everything's fucked. You know, I don't think but that's But there that's must be a, a plus in, you know, like you say that you preach to the choir, which is what I do really as well, but, you know, there's something to giving people optimism, giving, letting people mm. sing along, fuck the patriarchal system. Sure, <laughs> you know I mean? there's, yeah. There, there's something in, in making people feel like they're not alone. That, that has a benefit in itself, doesn't it? I hope so, yeah, I do hope so. And also, you know, I think, um, yeah, I mean, actually, even though it is a term that I used earlier on, I, 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 really, I really hate that criticism about preachers converted because I do think that, you know, it's, I don't see it that way. I always see it as, I call it like fuel in the tank instead because I think we all we all do need as i said we all do need to change the world because the world's awful at the moment and we're never going to do that if we all all we do is we just tell each other that everything's shit and nothing can be done about it um and i think that absolutely yeah getting a load of people together in a room to be like yeah to be like fuck the patriarchy or you know stand up today that we might save tomorrow or whatever you know i think that um it definitely acts. I know that I, when I've seen political art like that, it's in me. It's acted, you know, in a way that it's it's renewed me. You know, it's it's put it's put fuel in my tank to go out into the world and actually do something about it. So, hopefully, it's, yeah. What was I going to say? Oh, I was simply going to say that that you said we started at the same time as uh, or. or met through Josie. Josie's mm. one of the people that inspired me to mm. to talk about politics. Josie and Mark Thomas were two people that I saw doing political stuff and I went, oh my God, I'm angry as well and I didn't know how to do it and I spoke mm. to both of them and it helped me kind of yeah. put my stuff in the work. You know, we need that sometimes. We need that, that catalyst to kind of yeah. get you doing stuff. So, uh, to wrap up, what... Um, What's next? What have you got in 2019? Have you got so, more stuff coming? Apart I'm, from your Brexit album of 6,000 my... tracks, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm heading out on a... On a I, yeah, I can't get used to saying this. I'm doing an arena tour in January and February. That's amazing. Yeah, with Frank Turner um, and Jimmy Eat World, uh, which is quite surreal. And that's, um, uh, I think that's about eight or nine shows all over the country, um, finishing up at Ali Pali, which is going to be really cool. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that is that's really cool to kind of be playing those massive rooms. And then I've got my my headline tour is kind of later in the spring, which is uh, April and May, and then probably at some point I suppose 
have to make another bloody album. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah, uh, what on earth are you going to write about? Well, yeah, that's nothing left. Yeah, um, that's it, yeah. And one thing that I ask everybody, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me on this, um, one thing that I ask everybody at interview is, uh, apart from yourself, obviously that everyone should listen to and go out and get all your albums that are mm. all available on all of the places that albums are available. Um, who do you go to? Are there any other political uh, folk or music or anything that you like? Or, you know, who yeah. would you recommend people listen to, read, check out? What's your go to thing? Um, oh, God, so much stuff. Um, uh, music wise, I mean, I listen to a lot of music that isn't folk, really. Um, so. There's some there's some really cool uh, like pop punk bands in especially in London at the moment that do some really like cool political things. Um, I'm a massive fan of Colour Me Wednesday and um, the Tuts and Personal Best who are playing at my Christmas show in a couple of days. Um, there's a there's a, a kind of uh, I was about to say Northern, but she isn't Northern. She's from London, but she lives in the North now. Um, but there's a singer-songwriter called Anna Oaksmunger, um, who I know, um, she's been coming to gigs for years, and um, just like last year, she kind of brought out this album of incredible, amazing, like, again, quite lo-fi protest songs, um, which again, like, I just really love, because it's literally just her and a guitar and a microphone, she put it on Bandcamp, um, I think, like, all of the proceeds go to, um, uh, I think it was, like, Repeal the Eighth, or some, like, you know, um, pro-choice cause. Um, I almost, I, I always, almost say pro-life when I. <laughs> She's not pro-life. She's not pro-life. Neither am I. Um, uh, yeah, so she's really great. Um, and then, yeah, within folk, like there is some amazing political folk at the moment. Um, I mean, my um, partner's band is my partner's Hannah James, uh, and she has got a band called the Jig Doll Ensemble. She's writing loads of. Uh, yeah, writing loads of amazing stuff at the moment, and a lot of it is quite political. Comes from quite a political place. She kind of uh, made a quite conscious decision to have this sort of like international band of like European players. So you know, she's got like a, a Hungarian percussionist and like an Estonian bassist, and um, and then you know they kind of bring a lot of their own sort of like. Uh, like folk music to because obviously like there's different folk music from everywhere so the fusion of that is in itself like quite a cool sort of like uh yeah internationalist kind of statement which is quite cool um and i would say yeah also um again not to just plug all my girlfriend stuff but um (laughs) (laughs) another band she's in is uh lady masery which uh again i mean i i think that some of the stuff that they write and some of the stuff that they choose to sing and the way that they choose to... The songs that they choose from the tradition, the old songs, and the way that they choose to use them and update them in ways that are so um, so sort of apposite and so, uh, you know, apt of the times that we live in. Uh, I think that is, you know, that's something that is really amazing. So I think that, you know, it does... I've, I've kind of reached this point where I used to be on the outside of the folk scene looking in, and I used to think, oh bloody folk musicians you know all they do is they sit around and they sing about mermaids and they can't they can't handle me because i'm too radical and actually now i'm inside it i see that it's so radical you know the music that's being sung is so radical within folk music and like you know a lot of it is really challenging the the audiences and a lot of the kind of privilege of the audience within folk music so yeah all of those people i would heartily recommend 
Thank you so much to Grace for letting me interview her uh, before the Nine Lessons show that we are both doing that night. Um, you can find Grace's tour dates and music and other bits and pieces on her website at gracepetrie.com, her Twitter at gracepetrie, and buy her tracks at gracepetrie.bandcamp.com or on the music provider of your preference. And really, do do that. It's Their music's brilliant. Um, licensing laws and all that prevent me from putting more than a few seconds of her music on here, and rightly so, but I honestly couldn't recommend it enough. Or, of course, go see her supporting Frank Turner over the next few months. Uh, there is a tiny bit of extra Grace interview that I'm going to add to the Patreon and Kofi pages if you donate to the show, uh, where I asked her about the financial implications of being a musician in today's difficult climate. Fun stuff. More just more fun stuff. Um, that'll be up on those pages later in the week. Um, thank you also to King's Place and King's Cross for finding us a quiet room to record in. Uh, it's an excellent venue with loads of brilliant shows, talks, and, of course, the London Podcast Festival in September. So do check them out at kingsplace.co.uk. I've had some interesting guests approach me for interviews over the next few months, which is great. And I've got a few I've lined up too. But I still want to know who you'd like me to interview within sort of realistic possibility and what subjects to find interviewees for as well. Um, and you can let me know by dropping me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or take a hint from the government and just assume guests will appear of their own accord and then blame them as this podcast collapses, you know, for getting on with their own lives rather than doing all they can to be rambled at by a bearded idiot. As always, it's probably probably just best to email me, isn't it? And that's all, finally. Jesus, that was a long one, wasn't it? That's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast, the first one of 2019. Thank you for blindly stumbling into this new year with me and this show, all of us moving slowly forward trying to navigate around all the turds. Please spread the word around the show to friends or perhaps even Romans or country people, though I do know that Romans haven't invented podcasts yet, so you may have to sort of inscribe it for them, which could be an effort. Please join the Patreon or Ko-fi if you can, and I'll be posting a tiny bit of bonus Grace Petrie to both of those later in the week. And if you can and haven't already, please review the show on your favourite podcast sites or sides of dirty vans, but do wash your hands afterwards because, you know, the plague. Thanks to Acast for stockpiling this show amongst its other emergency ear food, to my brother The Last Skeptic for all the beeps and boops, and to Cat Day for all her weekly linear liner note writings, which you can see and follow up on any bits you need links for on the show on the website at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk. This show will be back next week when Theresa May will announce that her plan B is just to pretend nothing outside the UK exists and tell all children that the sea is endless and you can't cross the water or you'll anger the gods. Saji Javid gets very upset at the lack of migrant crisis this causes, so votes against it and the DUP try to vote against it but as they're from Northern Ireland May doesn't believe they're real and ignores them bye this week's show was sponsored by High Wiz Vests low quality urine coloured safety clothing for the populist who can't get enough PayPal donations to afford a proper one order now within a few working days you too can pretend that you're angry about burning issues of inequality when actually you're just a bit racist and desperate for cash and friends for just 15.99 you too can run around parliament calling politicians fascists for respecting democracy while saying you identify with the french even though you don't want anything to do with them all the while being less likely to get hit by a car high whiz fests so everyone knows you're a penis even at night time Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.